Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today in the podcast, we review the California Democratic Party convention where we saw 14 presidential candidates. Who was the breakout star? Who got booed? And what is the message to come out of the convention? The message we got was California is wide open. Breaking it down with us today will be Tal Copen, the Chronicle's DC correspondent, the big man, John Wildermuth, and Alexei Kosov, the Chronicle's Sacramento reporter. Next, looking at the presidential candidates who came to San Francisco on It's All Political. All right, welcome everyone. We have the California Democratic Party convention is over. We are here. We are here with uh, oh, the, the whole political team is together. Almost the whole, Almost the whole political team is here. And uh, Alexi Kosov from Sacramento Bureau is here. Say hello. Hi there. This is my first time. I'm excited. You're the rookie. Yes. Yes. There's a hazing ritual we'll skip. Um, the big man, John Wildermuth, is here. Good morning, everyone. And in her final hours in San Francisco until she flies back. Indeed. Chronicle DC correspondent, Tal Copen. All right. Can we agree that the breakout star of the convention, or maybe we don't have to agree, was Elizabeth Warren. Tal, you were there, 6,500 people at a rally in Oakland, Kamala Harris's hometown. Yeah, I think, I don't know if I would put it as the breakout star because I'm not sure... I'm not sure who was surprised, whether it was was the people at the convention or was it, whether it was the press. But, you know, I mean, certainly one thing she demonstrated this weekend is that she has a very strong level of support here in California. So, you know, in Oakland, she drew thousands of people. We started an hour late because the line wrapped all the way around the block. Uh, I shouldn't say the block, several blocks around uh, the Laney College campus. The crowd really responded to her well. I, I didn't think she was quite as um, quite as in the in the move on event. I thought she wasn't in the sort of top tier of the most engaging of the audience in the room, but certainly people afterwards still really liked her. I talked to many voters who who consider her high on the list, uh, even if they like some of the other candidates. So overall, I mean, she really demonstrated at the very least that she already had a lot of fans here and uh, perhaps should should consider making some more trips because this was her first one as a presidential candidate. I would just add that on Saturday when all but a few of the presidential candidates who were visiting spoke to the convention, she got by far the biggest response in the room. It was honestly electric in there. People were going crazy. And when I spoke to a couple of delegates later in that, evening they noted that and there was even a few who said that while they'd already liked her she'd sort of nudged up to their top pick for now even though they remained undecided and she has I was, we we're talking to folks at consultants uh, uh democratic strategists and they're saying she has let's face it she has a very crisp message arguably the crispest mm-hmm. if that's a word uh of any of the candidates and they have an enemy billionaires and corporations and there's the i got a plan for that but one problem she's going to face is simply burning. They are going to split a lot of that progressive vote until one or the other of them either drops out or says, or says something different. I mean, again, it was Bernie and Elizabeth Warren were the two 
two of the main people today uh, at the convention, a lot of supporters for both of them, but they're the same people. And, you know, that's going to be a problem down the line. Well, I think, but, but I uh, would actually phrase it that Bernie has a problem and it's Warren, <laughs> not yeah. the other way around. And, and, you know, I think you see it in the polling that she's, she's ascendant in that fight. And there are a lot of folks who, you know, have been turned off from Bernie in, in one way or another over time. And, you know, I mean, there's some that are going to stick with Bernie to your point that, you know, it's, as, it's, it's probably a zero-sum constituency at some point, but I also have gathered that when I when I hear voters include Warren's name in a list of candidates, it's not always a list that includes Bernie Sanders. And you know, I think that she has demonstrated a bit of a broader appeal than he has. So yeah, I would phrase it as as it's Bernie's problem, not Warren's problem. And the other message we got from the convention this weekend, taking off from that, is California is wide open. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I, I, even wider open than I thought it was. I mean, because now we have we have Bernie, we have Kamala, we have Elizabeth Warren, and who knows what noise uh, Beto can make. Um, Buttigieg, Judge, everybody, everybody seemed to have a top four, top five, and there were people I talked to who, you know, hearing things from Inslee and just other random people started bringing up their names too. So with those messages getting out in front of people, I think a lot of these voters are really receptive to to almost any candidate. They're excited that there's so many people who have a message that they like. The good news for them all, though, is that there's plenty of delegates to go around in California. Uh, only uh, about 80 of the delegates, a percentage of them, are elected statewide. Every other delegate to the convention is elected in the 53 congressional districts, where anybody who gets at least 15% of the vote in that district gets at least one delegate. So whatever happens on uh, after the primary election, you're going to see that California's delegation split up widely. And and one thing I found really interesting talking to voters, I mean, I I picked I got the same thing as Lexi. I mean, a lot of people have a top three, you know, or or you know, but several of them left these events. I mean, this is one of the first opportunities we've had to see lots of candidates sort of back to back in the same context, under the same ground rules, with sort of their opportunity to for voters to kind of shop in a way that they haven't been able to. And I talked to a lot of voters who left these events less decided than when they went in. And, you know, but at the same time, they were so energized by it. You know, I think the 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 notion is sort of like pick a, pick a horse, pick a lane, pick a candidate. And, and in fact, you know, I talked to some of the voters after Move On who were saying, they're like, I'm so optimistic because I know that even if my candidate doesn't win, I'm probably going to have a really good choice at the end of it. And I think that's a real change from 2016, where it felt very us versus them, regardless of which candidate you were talking about. Yes, yeah, so that was certainly the case in California, where the, where the Bernie versus Hillary uh, uh, Fisher was, was very stark. Let's talk about California's native daughter. Senator Kamala Harris. What I, I gotta say, it was her speech to the convention left me a little. Um, I don't want to say cold. It was fine, but it was like it was really heavy on anti-Trump. Um, I know that you know everybody in the room knows her, but still, I would have. I don't know what I was looking for for her from her, but I, I don't know quite what it was. But I, I just I was surprised that she went heavy anti-Trump. Everybody in the room's anti-Trump. So what do you gain by that? I don't know, what, am, I, am I out there? What do you guys think? I, I will say the, it played really well in the room. In, in terms of reaction, she probably got 
the second or third best sort of response that I saw. And people really loved when she talked about impeachment and talked about getting someone new in that office. So it may have been a hometown advantage, but providing that message is is something that people want to hear right now. And certainly, even if she didn't explode with a star-making moment, she held her ground at the convention. She had tons of supporters out there. They were around. They were waving signs, making noise, making their presence felt. And you could see that she was still really strong in yeah, California. I think that there would have been there are a few outcomes that would have been good for her, right? Obviously, one would have been being the only candidate here that anyone cared about and and that's probably was never going to be possible for her so you know short of that the the next best thing is be very respectable and I think that that is where she ended up you know in in the caucus room that I saw her speak in she was very popular and that was the women's caucus she was very popular in that room uh you know at move on we had the episode with the protester that sort of threw everyone off for a little bit but she regained her footing she did well in that room so you know I think that she did what she and and to Alexi's point I mean being able to demonstrate that you don't just you know have name recognition in California but you can turn people out to wave signs and shout your name is an important thing to do so you know I think that overall short of having demonstrated that she has California locked up which we all agreed was not going to happen she did what she needed to do to show that she's still quite competitive more to the point she showed that she belonged there you know here are 14 people that say they want to be president she stood right up there and fit in and, you know, that's one thing that any newcomer on the political scene, national political scene, has to do. They have to, you know, people have to look at them and say, that person could be president. And I think that that she's, is something she's managed to do. Um, let's talk a little bit, uh, Alexi, you start talking a little bit about uh, Mayor Pete. He's made several trips out here. He is uh, the favorite of the white coastal elite liberals in California. Um, but he, you know, I talked to him on the phone yesterday for a couple minutes. He said he acknowledged I, he's polling 1% with Latinos. You can't do that in California. Go anywhere. He's going to uh, Fresno on Monday trying to trying to branch out there. What do we learn, if anything, new about Mayor Pete this weekend? I was actually really surprised by his strategy here in San Francisco because he didn't bother to show up to a single caucus that I saw. I didn't see uh, not the LGBT not caucus, even the L- yeah think- last night I camped out at the LGBT caucus wondering if he might at least make an appearance there and Amy Klobuchar came and Bernie Sanders came and he was nowhere to be found so it was odd to me that he wouldn't at least try and start making some inroads there the way other candidates have to get out in front of these people um, they'll be back in November probably trying to win some in you know, the endorsement and things like that. So you got to start seeding that now. So maybe he's sort of giving up on California. I'm not sure. That said, people did really like his speech from talking to them after. I think a lot of folks who are looking for message rather than policy, so sort of the opposite of what they're getting from Warren, really connected with him. They still feel inspired by what he's saying. There were several people who just loved hearing him get up there and talk about his husband and how meaningful that was to them after the long fight, you know, get gay marriage legalized. Um, so yeah, I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of really wrapped, particularly gay men, but white gay men, um, in that, in that convention hall on, on Saturday. 
And uh, fresh off his the debut of his HBO documentary, Beto O'Rourke was there too. What did we learn from Beto this weekend? Do we uh, he we saw him speak a couple different times, half if not more in Spanish. Um, what did we what did we learn from Beto? Is Beto mania a thing in California yet? Is there potential for that? What do we? You know, in terms of the move on audience, you know, I thought he was in the bottom tier in terms of again the engagement of the audience in the room. Uh, which was somewhat underwhelming. I mean, I got a lot of tweets from people being like, you know, you didn't even mention him in his story, and he was the best. So, I mean, he still has a constituency out there for sure, but, and his, you know, he, he focused his remarks on immigration in Move On, which was the, the premise was you have to sort of pick one big idea, but, I mean, as a, as a former immigration reporter, I, they, there wasn't much meat on the bones there. It was sort of broad strokes, you know, we should treat immigrants well uh, was was the focus, whereas uh, some other candidates really drilled down into something uh, much more specific. So, you know, and he just keeps having this problem where he sort of misjudged the rollout of the campaign and, and didn't see the white male privilege criticism coming, uh, which I think is fair, but has seemed to become an anchor around his neck in a way that plenty of other white male candidates in this race haven't seemed to struggle with as much in that it's not really defining their candidacy. And you saw it here, too. I mean, that was one of the questions he got on stage and move on. It's it's a question that he's getting now literally every time he does any press or any public appearance. And and he has not seemed to be able to sort of free himself of that botched rollout. Big Ben? Yes. The one thing he does have, though, he spoke about immigration. He has a ton of credibility on that. He was a congressman from El Paso. He grew up grew up on the border. He grew up talking to immigrants, legal and illegal, uh, working and playing ball beside him and such like that. You look at people like Bernie. You look at people like uh, Klobuchar. They're in areas they're they're making comments about immigration, and really it's not something that they've lived with. It's you know kind of an intellectual idea of here's what we got to do, rather than somebody on the ground. The problem is though, is he can't be a one-trick pony. He's right. gotta, if he's going to move up in the polls, he has to be talking about other stuff and connecting with people and other issues. Yeah. And even, you know, even on the issue of his credibility, I mean, you couldn't see me shaking my head, but yes, he grew up on the border. There's no doubt that El Paso is a community that lives many of the issues that are central to the question of immigration. But he was in Congress and he didn't do much on it. And, you know, I mean, you could certainly you can say, well, you know, Republicans controlled the House when he was there and there wasn't much to do. But I covered for years plenty of Democrats who were making as much noise as they could at any turn. And Beto wasn't one of them until really he started looking ahead to a potential presidential campaign. And, you know, I think that I talked to one voter who said that what she doesn't like about Bernie is that he has no track record to stand on, that he's been in politics for so long. And, you know, he has great ideas, but he can't demonstrate really any time that he's been able to turn those ideas into action. I think that's going to be something Beto also gets a lot of question on if he tries to run on immigration, because he did have a chance in Congress to do more to elevate the issue when he represented the border in Congress. 
And a quick quick programming note, uh, Beto, we did a podcast with him, and we asked him that very question. Um, and he said, you know, he kind of blames it on, well, you know, I was in the minority, and, you know, in the minority in the House when uh, the Republicans held the House. That's essentially his answer. Go ahead, Alexei. Well, in terms of the reaction I saw, it was, it was pretty split because his, his speech overall to the full convention fell surprisingly flat. Um, but he did get a lot of selfie requests. So there's <laughs> kind of that. The selfie meter, there was kind of that celebrity factor, but not Almost a huge, as scientific as polling. <laughs> yeah, but not, but not that enthusiasm. So um, when he came into the Latino caucus on, on Friday night, for example, the, he got a big reaction, but Bernie Sanders got an even bigger reaction. Let's move on to what I, I believe history will remember as the Hickenlooper moment. This is when, <laughs> who wants which, to take this which one? John Delaney tried to replicate. <laughs> yes. It will not be remembered as the John Delaney moment because no, no one will remember John Delaney. <laughs> um, so, big man, why don't you walk us through what exactly the Hickenlooper moment was? This is uh, John Hickenlooper, the governor <clears throat> of Arizona. Or former the go- governor? Former governor of Colorado. Sorry. Sorry. So, John Hickenlooper is former governor of Colorado, and he is, you know, certainly... Uh, more of a centrist than a lot of these other guys. And, you know, it's not the, uh, this was not his crowd. And he came right out and started talking about, uh, told them, hey, socialism isn't going to win the election. And the response was, and then, and if we go that way, Donald Trump is going to get reelected. And by the way, I'm not for Medicare, Medicare for all. So, yeah, he went right out there and essentially said that. And then today, uh, former uh, Congressman John Delaney said about the same sort of stuff and got the same sort of reaction. Boo! Now, if anybody wants to know why uh, Joe Biden wasn't at the convention this weekend, all you have to do is listen to the response to uh, Hickenlooper and Delaney. As one Democratic uh, consultant told me, if he comes here and gets a tepid response or booze, that's the whole story nationally. You know, Biden gets booed by California Democrats. He doesn't need that. And, you know, the, the people at the, uh, at the convention are the activist end, and right now it's a very progressive activist side. For Although I heard, I was talking to a bunch of delegates, and they were saying, you know, we wanted to see Joe Biden out here. We get the politics of it doesn't make sense for him to be here because he's, you know, so far ahead in the polls. But we want to see him. We want, you know, we, all we know him as is, you know, Barack Obama's sidekick. We, we want to see him as an individual side by side with all these other candidates. And, did you hear, do you guys hear some of that and, too? And, you know, the other candidates took shots at him. I mean, yeah. Bernie went, you know, right there and said, you know, candidates who are here and others who for some reason, uh, you know, decided not to be. And, you know, the theory that like he would have flopped, I mean, Amy Klobuchar, who let's face it, I didn't talk to anyone coming out of this weekend. I mean, I talked to some who were like, oh, she, she impressed me, but you know, she's still not my favorite. Yeah. This is not her audience. But she came and she was game and she spoke to every one of the caucuses and she got good reactions and she, you know, did the work and she has the same message as Biden overall of, you know, I can win in the Midwest. I mean, she literally says I can win in the Midwest. I can yeah. win over red districts. And and she did not get booed, right? Hickenlooper leaned into it. And so, you know, I I... I got the sense from a lot of folks that Biden really missed an opportunity. I mean, keep in mind, this is not a uniform state. They're the progressives. Yeah. But he he's still leading in the polls in this state. Do we think that 
Hickenlooper did this intentionally to say, uh, you know, here it's this is. Uh, I went to California. Look what I said to these to these super liberals out there. Blah 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 blah. blah. Midwest love me. So I, I actually went up to him after the speech and asked him that because he kind of started smiling when he got booed. And I wondered if that was his whole goal in coming here to have, you know, a Dianne Feinstein moment where she got booed at the 1990 California Democratic Convention for supporting the death penalty. And then she used it in a TV ad in her gubernatorial run that fall. And he said he... He assured me he did not come intending to get booed, but he expected it might happen. And I thought what was interesting was he wasn't trying to completely brush off those progressive voters. He he said he still considers himself a pragmatic progressive. So he's trying to sort of straddle this line between being a moderate and being a progressive. And... Um, you know, he, he keeps touting these things he did as Denver mayor or, or Colorado governor that he considers progressive. So he's looking for somehow, you know, to have that moderate credibility and also say the right things to win over those activists. And he did not rule out using the booze in a TV okay, ad. So. so are you are you ready to call BS on Hickenlooper? I think I, I think it was, you know, an orchestrated moment. Let's just say that. Big Ben, you want to add something or no? Uh, just uh, the bottom line is uh, Biden wasn't here because he didn't have to be here. Uh, I would expect that in the next week or two, you'll see him show up here, pick his audience, and you say, look, people love me here, and <laughs> whether they do or not. There was also uh, the final bit of business at the, at the convention was the uh, election of a new chair. Alexi, you were there for all the drama. What did we learn from the... Um, the election of the new chair? Well, I think we probably learned that when the establishment wing of the California Democratic Party wants to reassert control, they will reassert control. Everybody had been expecting this would be a close fight between Rusty Hicks, the president of the Los Angeles Labor Federation, and Kimberly Ellis, a progressive activist who ran before and almost won in 2017. And instead, the results came in last night, and he Hicks crushed her. He got 57% of the vote. And, you know, that was with this really intensive organization by unions and by uh, p- political leaders in the party, nearly all of the elected officials in, in, you know, the state legislature and even some Congress members endorsed Rusty Hicks and to try and push him over the edge. And, and, and so... They were looking for sort of a stabilizing force after what's been a really, you know, crazy six months or so with the with the past chair Eric Bauman resigning um, amid sexual misconduct allegations, and they found their man in Rusty Hicks, and they made sure that he would win. And I think it's a a signal. I mean, if you're talking about what, I mean, there are only so many extrapolations you can make, given that this was a very defined population of delegates who were allowed to vote. But it certainly shows that organization behind the scenes matters a great deal. If you were judging simply based on reception, Kimberly Ellis seemed very strong. There was in oh, so she blows away the room almost right. always and when she so, speaks. And so you know the 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 notion that you can judge the strength of a candidate by the reaction they get. I think the the if you're going to draw a lesson from that race, it's that Hicks must have had a better 
operation in terms of organizing, reaching delegates, locking in those votes, because we all expected a runoff and it wasn't even close on the first race. What it also shows is just how strong labor is in the Democratic Party. I mean, he's uh, a president of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor. That represents about 800,000 union workers down there. And uh, a lot of unions got behind him, and that's a lot of organization. The other thing is, I was talking to some people, and they said a lot of the delegates are just tired of drama. They don't want that anymore. They want somebody that's going to come in and do the work of the party and hang on to their seats, the congressional seats in 2020, and just organize like that and not get bundled up and bound up by all sorts of other stuff. Is this say anything about the power of the Bernie Kratz in the California Democratic Party. We've, we're, estimates that I are, go with is about 40% of the, of the delegates are Bernie-friendly, for lack of a better word. Um, Kimberly Ellis got about 37% of the vote. Is that, does this show, what a, is there a ceiling on Bernie's power within the party? I don't know. What I think it shows more than anything else, though, is that <clears throat> when they took over the party after the 2016 election, a lot of those people had never been involved in the party organization before. So we're talking a bunch of rookies here. The people that were back in Hicks are not rookies. And whereas they might not have, you know, all the, uh, all the people yelling and shouting and everything else like that, as Tall said, you know, they have organization, and that's what it really showed. That also, though, is going to be a challenge for Hicks moving forward. Speaking with Ellis supporters last night, uh, a lot of them really want to see a change in the party, not just in, you know, moving on from scandal, but also they feel like the politicians who are elected are not listening to the platform that they're putting forward. They feel like they are tired of seeing white men leading the party and they would like to see more people of color and particularly women of color who can, you know, be that representative of this increasingly diverse electorate in California and increasingly diverse, you know, Democratic Party membership. And so Hicks is going to have the challenge of reaching out and unifying this party that's now been divided twice in two years in these elections and, you know, reach out to these pretty new activists and say, it's okay, please continue to be a part of a part of this party, please continue to be enthusiastic and go out and knock on doors and help us get these candidates elected. I mean, I would say two things. One, I mean, Bernie Bernie has a lot of overlap with labor. So I don't know that it's, you know, the cleanest cut distinction that, that Ellis was a vote for sort of the Bernie Sanders world and, and Hicks, you know, wasn't. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And the other thing that just, you know, in terms of what sort of lessons you can draw. I mean, it's a very different type of thing to vote for, right? I mean, the the mechanic, the question of what you want in charge of the apparatus is very different than the question of who you want as the face of the party. And I think Ellis sort of ran more of a face of the party campaign, whereas, you know, Hicks is going to be more of like, let's raise some money, let's build a ground game so that when our candidate, you know, kind of emerges, we can we can put force behind them. And I think those are very different questions. And it seems like the delegates might have been asking themselves that. You know, there was actually sort of a funny moment on the convention floor Sunday morning, but it really highlighted that that difference where um, so Jewel, the you know e-cigarette company, has been sponsoring this election, uh, this convention, and 
um, people were really unhappy about that. Um, their ad flashed up on the screen, and this activist got up and and while uh, you know the acting chair uh, was up there and asked, you know, can we please stop taking money from Jewel? They're preying on children. And and chair Alex Giardo Rooker basically said you know, are you going to raise the money to make up for that hundreds of thousands of dollars we would lose? And the activist was like, yeah, I'll bake 10,000 challah breads and sell them every Friday afternoon to do it. But like, there's this real tension there between like, what does it take to run a party? And like, we want to stand on our principles. And and that was just like laid bare right there. It's purity versus pragmatism. And there's no real answer. I mean, for years, uh, for example, and Joe can remember this, You'd go to a Democratic Party convention, and all the signs up there would be from the Indian tribes that had casinos around there, right. essentially gambling money, supporting the party. And you know, you gotta you gotta raise the money somewhere. And uh, unless somebody can show them where, it, it's kicking people out and kicking groups out is going to be very costly. All right, guys, thanks so much for uh joining us we you know we could talk about this for hours but tall's got to get to the airport yeah it was great to be here (laughs) thank you all alexi big man tall thank you so much for being here i'd like to thank tall copeland and john wildermuth and alexi kosef for being here today i'd like to thank all of you for listening and i'd like to thank libby coleman for producing today's podcast remember whether you're in california or not It's All Political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, Subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks. <laughs>